Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. On the podcast today, Director of ETFs Andre Bruno unpacks the current ETF landscape and discusses emerging trends that are on his radar. Andre explains to host Brian Borsakowski that the Bank of Canada rate hikes weren't a shock to the market and inflation in both the U.S. and Canada remain above the 2% target. The European Central Bank, however, faces worse inflationary pressure with inflation continuing to run higher than their 2% projection. And as consumption slows, Andre explains the extent and outcome of economic cooling will depend on various factors, including the effectiveness of central bank policies, consumer behavior, and global economic conditions. This podcast was recorded on June 20th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So let's start with uh, some of the big economic news that's come out last week and the week before. We saw the Fed uh, pause on their rate hikes, but the Bank of Canada increased its rates. um, And plus, U.S. CPI came out a little bit lower uh, than it was uh, before. And I just wanted to get your thoughts to start just on what you make of all of this um, on on the rates, on CPI. There's still a lot going on today. Yeah, so when we talk about the Fed, it was a bit of a... A bit of a hawkish hold, so to speak. Uh, you know, if, if, if folks remember, the Fed has hiked at every meeting since I believe April 2022. Um, so obviously, the Bank of Canada got their pause in early on this year. Um, and they didn't really shock markets. The BOC didn't really shock markets with their 25 basis point hike. The market was pricing in about a 50% probability of, of, of that happening. You know, if you take a look at recent uh, inflation numbers, they're certainly trending in the right direction, whether you're looking at the United States or Canada. But again, still, uh, you know, still trending well above the 2% target. Again, whether you're looking at the United States or Canada, if you take a look at Europe, it's even worse there. Uh, inflation's still running a lot hotter than the 2% ECB target as well. Um, so what did, you know, what did Jerome Powell, what did the FOMC say? You know, they essentially indicated that there would be more hikes coming down the pipe. I think they indicated somewhere around potentially 50 basis points more of tightening sometime this year. A lot of, a lot of folks asked the question, well, you know, if, if you're committed to you know, doing some more hikes, why even bother taking a pause? Uh, again, I mentioned that they haven't uh, stopped hiking rates since April 2022. Uh, so it's potential they just want to give the market a quick breather uh, again and let those rate hikes filter into the economy. When you take a look at our side of the border and, and the BOC, again, we got that pause in there. Um, you know, housing hasn't really, you know, come lower. I think the BOC is making note of that. We did get a temporary pause and a temporary cooling, uh, but things, it seems to be a seller's market once again in Canada. Uh, the Canadian consumer is proving to be quite resilient, even in spite of the fact that we're sitting at somewhere around 108% uh, personal debt uh, to income levels. Um, so I think, again, you know, the BOC is saying, you know, housing hasn't really cooled uh, materially. You know, or, you know, spending is is still re- relatively robust, albeit I'll say the last couple of prints have softened from a retail sales perspective 
in Canada. Um, so I think the BOC is saying, you know, we're still not at 2%. I, I think we can hike a little bit more. Um, you know, I think both the BOC and the Fed are concerned about that hard landing. I think they are trying to orchestrate a soft landing. So they are being careful um, with, 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 their, with their rate hike policy there. Uh, but again, I think when you're taking a look at markets and what markets are currently pricing in, still pricing in another 25 from the BOC uh, for the remainder of uh, 2023 here. Um, you know, if you, if you rewound back several months, you know, the market was pricing in cuts. Same on the U.S. side. Um, markets are still pricing in some more hikes from the from the Fed for the rest of this year. I wonder, is, is there any risk, do you think, of a, a policy mistake in that, um, you know, the Bank of Canada, when they did increase, some people thought maybe it was a little too fast. Um, it was sort of reacting to some CPI data in, in June and, um, and they could be moving a little too quickly. We haven't seen all the interest rates work itself through the economy. Is that on your radar at all? What would be kind of maybe the, the outcome if, if something did um, there was a mistake there and they hiked too aggressively. Yeah, so so that has been a question that people have been asking. So I, I think I think you have to rewind back all the way to 2021. I think the question is, is should central banks started hiking rates slowly back in 2021 instead of having to hike so aggressively in 2022? Um, now, if we think about kind of, you know, going into 2022, you know, markets were only pricing at about 150, 200 basis point hikes from both the BOC and the Fed. Obviously, we blew well past that. Um, you know, given where inflation was going and the inflation prints we saw, I think I, I don't think the BOC or the Fed had a choice at that time. You know, you, you think back to the 70s and Volcker and how aggressive he had to be in terms of taming inflation. So I think there were certain you know flashes about you know inflation potentially getting out of control. So I think central bankers were um, you know certainly didn't want it to get out of control, hence the aggressive rate hikes. But I think you know in terms of potential policy error. Um, you know, I would argue that the policy error was not hiking at least a little bit in 2021. Yeah, there's some uh, people even say maybe they should have hiked, you know, 2015, 2016, and uh, even before post Great Recession. But um, but we are where we are now. And and so when you're looking at inflation and the data that's coming out in the U.S., it was um, a little softer, but core inflation was still pretty high. What are you looking for in that inflation data? And have you seen positive signs of things materially? coming down to getting closer to that 2%. Yeah, so certainly trending in the right direction. Now, if you take a look at, you break down kind of the components of CPI, what's one of the largest drivers for why CPI is still so hot is that services inflation. Um, so again, that has turned a corner and is trending lower, but that remains to be kind of the, the stickiest component with regards to in, with regards to uh, the inflation story. Now, um, you know, the, the, the problem with services inflation, obviously, you know, CPI goes up, uh, individuals uh, demand larger pay to offset that inflation, and it's kind of a bit of a positive feedback loop. So we're starting to see that level off a little bit. And again, the services inflation is trending lower uh, on a month-over-month -month basis. So, so that's positive there. Um, you know, it seems like we're going to get towards that 2% target, um, whether we get there by the end of this year or kind of Q1, Q2 this year, that'll be uh, again, that's the million dollar question there. But, um, you, know, you know, it seems that both central banks need to see those numbers continue to come lower. And it seems like both whether you're talking about the BOC or the Fed are committed to getting inflation at 2% target. So, again, if we see inflation remain at elevated levels, you know, it's possible we'll continue to see uh, hawkish rhetoric out of both the BOC and the Fed. And we did, you should mention, saw the ECB also raise its rates uh, just recently, too. So, so everyone's still, still, I guess, on that rate raising game, um, even even if there was a pause by the Fed. 
Well, that's just it. And the ECB, the inflation story is still a little bit worse there. I think they're somewhere around five, six percent in in Europe. So, uh, you know, a couple percentage points uh, ahead of us here in North America. So the ECB still has quite a bit of work to do. You know, reminder for folks, um, you know, go back a year, 18 months, and the ECB was still at, uh, you know, zero negative percent interest rate. So, uh, they've had to move quite a bit in order to tame inflation over there as well. Um, so it'll be interesting. I think, you know, when you take a look at the European economy versus, say, Canada and the U.S., I think Europe certainly has uh, a little bit more of an elevated risk or a hard landing relative uh, to North America. Uh, looking at North America, I, I think us Canadians still have a relatively slightly larger risk for that hard landing relative to our American counterparts. Again, predicated just on, you know, the leverage levels of the consumer and how the mortgage market here is in Canada versus how it is in the U.S., um, you know, with Canadian mortgages being somewhere around a 50-50 split between floating and fixed rate mortgages, whereas in the United States, they're closer to 99% of fixed rate mortgages. Maybe just, just one more question on the uh, macroeconomic picture here is that obviously impossible to predict the future, but what is your uh, thoughts on a potential recession? Uh, you know, a lot of people thought we'd have one by now um, and, and there's still growth in the economy and we haven't seen big unemployment. Do you have any thoughts on, on where this could unfold? Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say my base case, which is I think most people's base case, is, is kind of that soft landing scenario. Um, so we are seeing things cool down. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that retail sales in Canada is cooling a little bit. Um, you know, it's interesting when you look at the breakdown of retail sales, it's cooling uh, a lot more in uh, more expensive jurisdictions. So think, you know, your, your Toronto's, your Vancouver's of the world. Um, but we're seeing retail sales remain robust in those lower cost jurisdictions within Canada. You know, I think with the continued rate hikes, I think the Canadian consumer is certainly going to continue to be a little bit more stretch. Obviously, mortgage rates are going to march higher as, as the central bank continues to raise rate. So I, I think consumption, again, we've already seen it slow, and I think with increased uh, interest rate hikes, you're going to continue to see it slow. As we know, our economy is a consumption economy, as most developed nations are. About 78% GDP is, is that consumption factor. So as that starts to come in further and further, I think you're going to see a cool down in GDP. So I think you know there is a good chance we do get a, a soft landing scenario, uh, whether you're looking at Canada or the United States or, or, or even in Europe as well. Um, a question just came in uh, from from an advisor, and, and this is a good spot to ask it. So what are some of the implications for equities with continuing rate hikes? And what are some things advisors should keep in mind? Yeah, so so obviously there's certain equities that are more rate sensitive. Um, uh, so obviously looking for for equities that have less interest rate sensitivity. Um, you know, when you when you think about, uh, you know, there there's there's this term we use kind of kind of long duration equity. So again, those equities that have higher interest rate uh, sensitivity, obviously, you know, corporations that have large, um, you know, debt on balance sheets, floating rate debt, obviously they're going to be super sensitive. Um, so again, yeah, focusing on the sectors of the economy that have less interest rate sensitivity. Uh, but again, we, we also have to appreciate, you know, assuming that we don't get in a scenario where inflation goes in the wrong direction or remains high, we don't need to get a ton of interest rate heights uh, further interest rate hikes from the BOC or the Fed. Uh, again, another 25, 50 basis points shouldn't be too, you know, um, too painful for equity markets. Not, not more painful than we saw last year. Obviously, equities had a very tough year. So did fixed income. Uh, so again, focusing on those sectors that have less interest rate sensitivity and those that perform better in a, in a, in a, uh, uh, those that perform better, uh, right. not, not in a higher interest rate environment, obviously. Right. Right. Um, another question just came in. Thoughts on the Canadian dollar if the BOC continues to raise rates and the Fed holds? Yeah, so the, the loonie actually got a bit of a pop last week. 
uh, with the BOC hiking and the and and the Fed taking a pause. So if you take a look at kind of the, the interest rate differential on the two-year U.S. and the two-year Canadian note, um, that uh, that differential uh, uh, narrowed a little bit. So the the loonie did get a pop. I, I would say if the BOC has to hike more than the Fed, then I would expect the loonie to to kind of outperform in that scenario. Although it does seem like the Fed, you know, took a little bit of a pause. Markets are pricing in that they're going to come back in July and, and raise again. Um, so again, if you do see those interest rate differentials, you know, decrease and decrease with Canadian outpacing the the Fed on the interest rate side, I would expect the loonie to to outperform uh, the U.S. dollar in that scenario. Um, but it, it does appear like you know we're you know especially for the rest of the year in terms of what markets are pricing in. Um, they are pricing in kind of a lockstep move with the BOC and the Fed. So, you know, I, I don't know how much more room the, the Canadian dollar has to run with, within that regard. Um, great. Okay. So we, you're not just here to talk about the economy. You're also here to talk about ETFs. Um, what trends are you seeing now in the ETF space? I mean, ETFs are interesting because no matter kind of what's happening in the, in the economy, they seem to be doing well. We're having another good year. How would you characterize the year and what are you seeing? Yeah, so I believe we're somewhere around 18 or 19 billion of net inflows uh, to the ETF space. So uh, certainly outpacing the mutual fund industry uh, this year. Uh, when you take a look at the trends, whether it's this year or last month, they're kind of the same. So what we've been seeing, you know, fixed income has has garnered more assets this year than equities, which is not something we we typically see in the ETF space. Um, you know, when you, when you take a look at it and you get a little bit more granular. Um, again, we're still seeing that trend of a lot of folks flocking to those cash alternative products. So whether you're talking about HISA ETFs or uh, money market ETFs, treasury, short-term treasury ETFs, those are still garnering quite a bit of flows. Obviously, short-term interest rates are super high. The yield curve is inverted, so that front end does look relatively attractive. But we are also seeing demand for those bond aggregate uh, funds as well. So when I say bond aggregate, I think diversified pool of you know, North American, Canadian, or, or, or even global bond ETFs uh, that have been garnering assets as well. And I think that's been more of a play on, on kind of the, the uncertainty around the economic backdrop and folks looking to add some duration, some insurance into their portfolios. On the equity side, it's, it's been kind of international. Equities has been kind of garnering the most flows there. Um, you know, you know, there's certainly, um, some valuation uh, arguments to be made about why international versus U.S. Uh, obviously, last year, when you take a look at, you know, EM, for example, got kind of battered last year, whether you're looking at fixed income or equities. Uh, so certainly from a relative valuation perspective, international uh, can make some sense. Uh, obviously, the caveat there is, you know, taking a look at what you're owning in the international space, obviously taking into account the potential economic uncertainty when it comes to the global economy as well. Um, so again, you know, folks certainly being a little bit more defensive. When you take a look at just trading volumes in the ETF space, they've certainly been muted. I, I think there still is a, a high level of trepidation out there for investors. Uh, you know, people are being cautious with, with, with where they want to allocate capital and with, with what risks they want to take, given, again, the, the uncertainty surrounding the economic backdrop. I, one thing that you know I've been thinking about is that ETFs in the last you know two three years it feels like at least in Canada really kind of come into their own. People see that the, the value a little more than maybe they did before in these kinds of markets. I'm wondering if if, if you might feel the same and why do you think just the ETF um, space in general has done well in this time of volatility? Yeah, it's certainly a, an emerging vehicle. You know, as we know, obviously you know mutual fund assets are still quite quite 
you know, much larger than the ETF space, but uh, ETFs have been growing a lot. I mean, I think, I think it's a few things, just the innovation in the ETF industry. We're seeing a lot more, um, uh, you know, different products in there. So, you know, initially, if you think back to kind of when ETFs hit the market, they were primarily, you know, passive, passive investments. So getting your data exposure. So think of your S&P 500 index ETF. So it's certainly grown well past that. So we've got, you know, kind of smart beta factor ETFs, which, you know, aren't quite passive, aren't quite active. All the way to now, we've got a, a ton of active ETFs in the market. And in fact, if you look at the last three to five years, um, active ETFs have been gaining a larger, um, been growing at a, at a faster clip relative to their passive or smart beta counterparts. Uh, so again, I think just the, the, the offerings in the ETF space, people are starting to learn more about ETFs. You know, if you take a look at the U.S., they're certainly a few years ahead of us in terms of uh, ETF adoption. Um, but again, I, th I think it's, uh, it's, it's garnered a lot of steam over the last several years, and I think that trend's going to continue into the future. Uh, you mentioned active ETFs, and uh, Fidelity did just launch a suite of active ETFs about a month ago or so. Um, talk a bit more about that. Why get into the active ETF space? And, and you know, what is that? How are they different than, than passive and smart beta ETFs? Yeah, so active ETFs, it's a fairly simple concept, um, but again, you know, when people think of active, they historically have thought about mutual funds, you know, active mutual funds, you've got a portfolio manager that's doing sector selection or asset allocation or, or security selection, you know, making active bets, trying to drive alpha, alpha being that outperformance relative to a passive benchmark. Uh, so again, that's that's what active ETFs are. Again, I mentioned how you know, there is a growing trend, there is a growing appetite for more active solutions in the ETF vehicle. You know, for us here at Fidelity, you know, we're 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 vehicle agnostic. You know, however you want to invest in Fidelity, whether it's through ETFs, whether it's through mutual funds, again, we we have no preference. But again, we just wanted to provide choice to the market. And again, it seemed there was more uh, appetite for active vehicles. So again, we wanted to uh, give give our investors a choice with how they invest with us here at Fidelity. And uh, I guess what is the maybe the benefit of, of an active ETF? Um, why buy that uh, over a mutual fund? I guess as you said, you can you can get both, but but you now have two products that you can get: mutual funds and active mutual funds and active ETFs. Why consider that active ETF um, vehicle? Yeah, so there are there are some there are some investors out there, there are some advisors out there who do prefer the ETF vehicle. They like running an ETF book. Um, but in terms of the kind of the pros of it, obviously your intraday liquidity. Um, so as we know, mutual funds, you, you kind of get your, you put your trade in throughout the day and you get filled at end of day nav at 4 p.m. Um, you know, some people do ha like that flexibility to be able to set their price levels, set their limits uh, and have that intraday liquidity. Um, you know, depending on what firm you're at, sometimes bulk trading mutual funds can be a little bit uh, a little bit cumbersome not not all firms some firms have a, a fairly decent operating model for achieving that um, but historically it has been a little bit more challenging in terms of allocating across say if you have a model portfolio and you want to allocate you know mutual fund purchases across accounts it has been cumbersome historically ETFs does facilitate that process as well uh, so I'd say those are the probably the two uh, two main positives just the ease of bulk trading and the intraday liquidity but on the, on the Fidelity ETFs, the active ETFs, um, are they different from the mutual funds that are in sort of the same category? Uh, you know, how should people kind of see see both of those? Yeah, so it's a great question. So um, for for the folks at home, there we did launch we launched four active ETFs. So Global Innovators, managed by Mark Schmel, uh, Global Small Cap Opportunities, uh, managed by Connor Gordon and Chris Malazinski, uh, Fidelity Greater Canada Fund, managed by Hugo Lavallee. 
and finally Canadian large cap that's managed by Dan DuPont. Um, so with the exception of innovators, um, the other three are series of the existing mutual funds. So, you know, just think of your series B, your series F, ETF series, all the assets are commingled, um, you know, like for like experience with the underlying mutual funds. In terms of global innovators, this particular strategy is only offered in class here at Fidelity, um, which makes it a little bit challenging to, to hang a series off that particular structure. So what we went ahead and did was, you know, clone the strategy. So you're getting the exact same investment advice, exact same strategy in both the mutual fund and in the ETF. But I just want to make it clear to investors that it is a separate fund technically, although they are going to perform very, very similar to one another. Great. And uh, let's talk about, you mentioned smart beta too. So you've got now, you're kind of offering everything, but I, I, smart beta feels like it's maybe one of the more misunderstood categories or hard to understand. What is smart beta or factor, factor ETFs? Yeah. So, so in terms of factor ETFs, you're taking a look at a specific area of the market. So for example, you know, we've got a quality factor. So, you know, this particular factor, it's, it's quantitative, typically these are quantitative based strategies. They, they are um, developed to achieve alpha uh, over 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 a passive index. But again, it's looking for targeted expo targeted exposures. Um, you know, typically quantitatively managed through a model. Um, and again, just to give you an example, I, I mentioned our quality factor. So, for example, there you're taking a look at companies that have quality earnings, quality cash flows, quality balance sheets, and you're you're investing in those particular companies. Again, you're still trying to achieve that alpha. Uh, the way we like to say it is they're active in design, passive in implementation. Um, and for uh, Fidelity has these all-in-one ETFs. How does that fit, fit in with the lineup? And uh, what are your thoughts on that kind of structure? Yeah, so so those have been actually some of our more popular solutions this year is our all-in-one. So we do have a, a full suite um, going from you know conservative all the way to a full equity suite. So the way we've we've designed these particular solutions is we've packaged uh, four of our five factors that we offer for the the equity portion of these portfolios. Um, so you are getting that that factor, that smart beta exposure on the equity side. And then in terms of the fixed income side, we've put in uh, our Canadian uh, systematic uh, bond uh, index ETF, which is kind of the um, it's kind of the uh, fixed income version of smart beta. So it is a, a quant based strategy looking to, to drive alpha. And then we also have are actively managed Global Core Plus uh, as a part of that fixed income allocation as well, which and, and that's managed by Jeff Moore and Mike Plage. So you're getting this, you know, one ticket solution, competitively priced solution uh, that's covering taking care of your asset allocation for you, uh, whether you're talking about the equity or fixed income side. So you are getting that smart beta exposure, but you're also getting a little bit of active exposure as well uh, through the fixed income side. So I mean, you know, advisors uh, can, I guess. Get involved in factors in a couple different ways. There's the all-in-ones. You can do it yourself. I mean, how do you sort of see advisors um, getting into factors and, and using them in client portfolios? Yeah, so you know they can be used as satellite positions uh, in a couple of ways. So you may, uh, you know, for example, in this particular market, uh, again, given given the uncertainties moving forward, you know, quality is a factor that we're recommending. So looking at again quality companies, uh, and, and folks can use it in a couple of ways. They can use it to make a view, saying, you know, again, we're in a potential recessionary environment. I want to have a bit of a quality uh, tilt on my overall portfolio. I'm going to add the quality factor. Uh, it, it, you can use it for risk management purposes. You can take a look at your portfolio and say, you know, where, where's my factor risk? You might say, oh, I'm, I'm very overweight 
you know, growth. I'd like to, you know, offset a little bit of that with value. So you can use it from a risk management perspective. You can use it from taking a market view perspective. Those are probably the, some of the most popular ways we see advisors use these particular mandates. And then maybe to expand on that, uh, now you have passive, now you have factor, you also have, uh, uh, you know, active. There's a lot more to choose from, as you'd mentioned, the innovation in the industry. How do advisors construct an ETF portfolio today with all of that choice? Yeah, there's certainly a lot on the market there. So it can be a bit of a, a daunting task. You get into a bit of analysis paralysis, just looking at uh, all, all the offerings. Um, it's a great question, certainly. Um, you know, there's, you know, the core satellite approach where you have kind of your core, you know, equity holdings, your core fixed income holdings, and then you, you use satellite positions to play a little to tilt your portfolio with specific and targeted risks, whether that's, you know, duration or credit on the fixed income side, whether that's geography, sector allocation, or even factor exposure on the equity side. Uh, so again, you know, the core satellite approach certainly makes a ton of sense. Having your core positions, getting your core exposures to, you know, Canadian U.S. equities uh, on fixed income, Canadian international uh, bonds, and then, you know, playing around on the edges being tactical given the given the given the environment. Let's let's go back to some of the trends you're seeing, um, maybe that you've seen kind of over the last couple of years, and and going into the future as you know the space evolves. What are what are some other trends that you've noticed in the space? Yeah, certainly over the last you know two three years, certainly covered calls have been garnering quite quite a bit of assets in the ETF space. Uh, we continue to see uh, you know a lot of uh, new products, a lot of innovation in that particular space come to market. You know, as we know, options aren't the easiest thing to trade. Um, so again, the solution is giving you know advisors in the market uh, an ability to enter into uh, you know options, option strategies that otherwise might be a little bit too cumbersome to do on your own. Um, again, in the shorter term, last year or so, obviously, given where interest rates have been going, obviously HISA ETFs have have been uh, have been a big uh, big area of the market that's been garnering quite a bit of assets. Uh, given where interest rates are, especially on the short end of the curve. Uh, we talked about active already, which is starting to get more popular in the ETF space. Again, you're seeing a ton of issuers either offer just straight active ETFs, hanging series off their existing uh, mutual funds. And you're even seeing some folks go in the opposite direction, you know, launch an active ETF and then add a mutual fund series to it down the line as well. Uh, cover calls, cover call ETFs. So can you explain that a little bit more? What, why would it, someone want to consider that? What does that add to a portfolio? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, cover call strategy is simply, you know, you're buying an equity and then you're selling, uh, selling a call option um, uh, of that issuer as well. So you do get yield. So you do get income from selling those options. Um, you know, if you take a look at volatility, it has been a little bit higher over the last 12 months. So that, you know, the premiums that you're able to garner from these strategies has certainly gone up in lockstep. Uh, with volatility. Uh, it certainly protects to the downside to some degree as well with that additional income. Um, so I think if you take a look at the Canadian marketplace with regards to covered calls, um, you know, there a lot of the assets are kind of sitting in mandates that are somewhere around the 8 to 9% total yield. Um, so again, I think Canadians, in, in, and this is a, a general broad statement about Canadian investors, but we do love our yield in Canada. We love our dividends. We love our income. Uh, so I think that's been a big draw, especially in a, you know, if markets are moving sideways or slowly upwards, um, you know, you can still participate to the upside while also garnering some income as well. Great. And um, just just uh, talk a bit about also Fidelity's process. Lots of 
lots of uh, other companies of ETFs too. So what, what makes sort of Fidelity, um, you know, a leader in this space? What, how do you guys approach ETFs? Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, just, just making a broad statement about generally, I think we pride ourselves on kind of our bottom-up analysis. Um, you know, we have, you know, hundreds of, you know, analysts across the globe covering kind of every asset class, every sector, every company you can imagine. Um, so we, we obviously leverage our, our, our you know, our large dearth of, um, you know, uh, investment research, uh, and, and we certainly leverage our, our research capabilities and we apply it to every single fund we have, whether it's on the active side, whether it's working with our, you know, quantitative investment strategy team working on, you know, factor indices and how to put together some smart beta. Uh, so again, I, I just think we have, again, a, a ton of research folks across the globe, a lot of smart people working for Fidelity. We leave no stone unturned when it comes to a to a research perspective uh, and I think that 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 shows itself in our in our uh, in our in our in our managed solutions maybe just a last question as we get closer to wrapping up here um, it has you know we talked about the ETF the evolution in this space things have really picked up over the last couple of years where do you see the Canadian ETF industry going from here if you looked out uh, a few years into the future yeah, I, I think it's going to continue to gain market share um, from an asset perspective relative to mutual funds. And I, I don't think mutual funds are going anywhere anytime soon. Um, but just kind of looking at what I'm seeing in the United States and, and, and extrapolating from there, thinking that we're maybe five, 10 years behind, I think ETFs are going to continue to garner more assets, uh, continue to grow. I think there's going to continue to see innovation in the product offering of what ETFs can offer. Um, so again, I think it continues to grow. I think it continues to gain market share, and I, I think it continues to innovate. Great. Well, we're talking again in a couple of weeks, so we'll see what uh, the latest data says uh, around uh, around ETF flows, uh, the June data when it comes out. But I'm going to leave it there for now. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, as always, for having me, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.